Good morning, everybody. It is Friday, December the 6th, and I'm heading off to work. 8.39 in the morning. i got to tell you, it's it's kind of funny living in in uh, in Canada. Canada, the exquisitely chilly and grim, you know, like the winter here is kind of grim. It's a lot of fun when you're a kid, but not so much when you're an adult. I used to ski quite a bit, but... My wife has a sort of Mediterranean aversion to the cold, and so I can't really do that as much uh, anymore. But uh, this morning, I got up and I went to uh, out into the hallway, and there was this big light streaming in from the bathroom. And I thought, I was like, did I get did I leave the bathroom light on last night? I couldn't figure it out. And it finally struck me that it was actually sunlight. It was actually sunlight. I couldn't figure out why it was so bright. So we have a skylight in the landing. And it's very strange to not recognize sunlight in your own house. But that's the magical world of Canada. And so if you ever get a chance to visit here, do it in the summer. And if you live in a warm climate and know of anybody who wants a highly experienced and highly skilled software entrepreneurial manager guy, you be sure to give me a toodle, okay? That's the deal. That's all you have to pay for <laughs> to get me out of this fridge. Um, it is funny in life sort of how some some place as important as where you live is uh, is accidental, right? I mean, you don't choose it. I mean, because if you did, I mean, who on earth would ever choose to live in Canada? I mean, what a lunatic place to come to live. Um, so my wife and I have sort of been talking about that and saying, well, you know, we really don't have much to do with our families anymore. Uh, we have a few close friends, but, uh, you know, that's that's not a reason to stay in a particular place. And um, I don't get to spend enough time around Christians. That's really what I think. So we're thinking of moving to the States. Um, but, you know, the trick is to find someplace warm where we can afford it and where people are willing to sponsor the onerous process of, of moving uh, and getting the legal uh, ability to work in the States. Um, it's always sort of struck me as funny, just before we get to the main, the main topic today. We do have one, really. Really, I promise. Uh, before we get to the main topic today, which is voting, uh, I just sort of wanted to mention, and we'll do another one on immigration at some point, but I've always sort of found it funny that a group of people get to a country and then they sort of establish a, a culture or civilization there. Um, and then, you know, as soon as they're have any kind of money at all, they they sort of raised the drawbridge and are now completely against immigration. And of course, the immigration, the hostility towards immigration is a direct result of the welfare state and free services provided by government. Nobody is going to have boo to say about immigration unless they feel that their own paychecks are being threatened by people scamming them for state services, i.e. Um, receiving services and not paying taxes. Um, and so, you know, the death spiral sets in wherein because um, people are getting services, uh, scamming services, uh, they uh, and not paying as much in taxes. The taxes have to go up, which means that fewer people still want to pay the taxes and there's more incentive to get the services for free and so on. So that's, uh, you know, that, we'll have another chat about that topic another time, but I've always thought that's, that's kind of funny. And now that I'm facing a possible immigration to the U.S., I know how horrendous it can be to try and get 
any kind of legal status to work there. A friend of mine who's a professor, uh, he um, uh, he had um, uh, he got, got a job at a, a university. I think they had to advertise for two years for a professor with his particular skill set in order to be able to continue uh, hiring him. So he wasn't taking jobs away from Americans. Wasn't taking jobs away from Americans. That kind of thinking I just find is so economically illiterate. Uh, and I'm not saying I mean, it's not my my friend is a, a good economist. I'm sure, and he. Um, you know, the people who uh, who were hiring him were economists, so they knew how silly it was. It was just that they had to do that, or they wouldn't be able to, to hire him. So the topic this morning is voting. We have an election coming up here in Canada for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively short election. Uh, one, one of it has to do with the fact that uh, the, the Liberal Party here, which has been the sort of dominant party at the federal level for 40 or more years, and has all of the sort of old rot that you would expect from a habitual state, a habitual wielder of state power. Uh, they, you know, there's this Quebec thing in here where we have this sort of French-speaking, or sort of got a French-speaking province that keeps wanting to um, separate from the country, right? Because they are, uh, you know, old bigots, right? <laughs> Basically, I mean, I lived in Quebec for four years when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I also went, I went to the National Theatre School for two years, and I went to McGill for, uh, to finish my undergraduate for two years. Um, sorry, that doesn't make much sense. I started doing an English literature degree, and I started acting, and I enjoyed it, and then I started writing plays, and I enjoyed it. So I applied to the National Theatre School, and I got in, and I went for two years, but for a variety of reasons, found that it just wasn't for me. Um, the, the art that they were working on, and I, I didn't know this consciously at the time, but the art that they were working on was such, <clears throat> to me, horrible gutter art. You know, it's all these horrible, dysfunctional people and their horrible, dysfunctional lives, and I just, I never clicked with it. Um, later, I had an opportunity to do some speeches from uh, a play by Luther, sorry, a play called Luther by John Osborne, the guy who wrote Look Back in Anger, and I clicked with that stuff because it was intelligently written, but a lot of the stuff that you see, of course, in movies is just like, you know, dumb people behaving badly, or evil people behaving badly, Uh, and if there are good people, then they're sort of the Hill Street Blues kind of weary, holding back the tide of evil good people, and I've just never... It never clicked with me emotionally because I guess I had a sort of grander vision of life and its possibilities. And so I just found that the art world wasn't for me. And of course, the art world is all well and good, but you have to spend your time with other artists. And here in Canada, you can't survive without direct state sponsorship because people are so highly taxed that they can't consume art. And so they have to end up, uh, the state ends up subsidizing it. And I just found it, uh, you know, a sort of horrible, pretentious world where everybody's just trying to pretend that they are doing better or doing sort of doing better than they are and after a sort of childhood of of rejection I guess you could say I wasn't that keen on getting involved in a a field where there's so much rejection Uh, you know like 1% of the money goes to sorry 99% of the money goes to 1% of the people and it's also sort of struck me just as my last tangent before we get back to voting, which we will. It's, uh, it's in my mind. Uh, I watched a film uh, last week called Beijing Bicycle, which is a foreign film about 
it's sort of a little bit like the bicycle thief which is an old italian film um where you know this guy he's a bicycle courier and his bike gets stolen and you know he gets into this sort of strange gang warfare um because it turns out that the guy he finds his bike and then the guy who's got his bike actually bought the bike from the guy who stole it and put some money into getting a new seat and new handlebars and so it gets complex they end up having to trade it and then there's a a lot of violence and uh, so it's <clears throat> to me it that's an in- it was an interesting movie like all movies or or books that i read it starts off with uh, to me nicely um nicely etched details what i'm interested when i read a book or see a movie these days is sort of the nice details of people's lives i would have been perfectly happy to follow this guy's story as as if he were just another bicycle courier who came in from the rural area of china which is a big thing of course these days like all industrializations or whenever the free market gets a hold of people uh, it always draws them out of the country and gets them to the city because country life just sucks like a vacuum and so i would have been perfectly happy to see you know this guy's you know little adventures uh, of just sort of getting his feet go up simply because it's anthropologically fascinating to me to watch uh, a life that's very different from your own and and, and what makes it tick um i i was in china for about 3 weeks to do business in 2000 and uh i found it quite a fascinating culture um and so i would have been perfectly happy with the little details of this guy's life but of course everybody feels that you need more drama and so they end up uh, uh you know getting him into huge fights and you know chases and all this kind of and to me it's just silly right i mean you don't really see that stuff a whole lot maybe it goes on a lot in china i don't know but if it did then they probably would have found even more drama to throw at it and i find that the drama of people making challenging choices in a pretty corrupt situation is drama enough for me because that's actually okay one more tangent just what really indulge me this morning i think i'll uh, i'll try and tie it all together with a big bow later um we have uh, my wife and i have written a novel together uh called public lives which is about a day in the life of a psychologist who works in a state run hospital and it's uh, a, a so it is one of these novels of small details there's no fist fights there's no car chases there's no you know blow ups what there is is a a number of subtle but telling details about the corruption and the waste and the inefficiency and the emotional brutality that goes on but it's all subtle right it's subtle the way it is in life um you know when we're children a lot of us uh, are subject to a lot more uh, sort of overbearing authority let's say because we're helpless and we don't know any better and sort of well we know in, in our hearts we know better but we can't do anything about it but when we get older i mean i've never been involved in a car chase i've never really seen anything blow up um i've never exchanged gunfire or i i think i've only seen one body one dead body in my life and so my life is little details all of which add up to happiness or unhappiness right life is the happiness and unhappiness is in it's in the small details in the beginning of things and so uh, you know we wrote this book with that in mind and i i kept all of my n- normal juicy metaphors and desire for drama i kept all of that out of the novel and it's you know it's a very short novel and i think it's i sort of was i, I based the idea on sochenitsin's a life a day in the life of ivan denisovich which you haven't read it again the first half is great uh, the last third 
you know, his religious justifications is all nonsense, but, you know, I'd just love it if a novelist could make it all the way through a book just giving me little subtle powerful details about someone's life because I could actually relate to that. And so this woman in the hospital, um, she treats uh, all her patients and all of her patients, you know, are depressed or angry or bitter or corrupt or whatever. And, you know, this, the subtle part of the novel is that uh, they are all uh, they are all state employees. They are all public servants. So you know, that's why the novel is called Public Lives, right? Because everybody who works in the hospital is there and everyone who gets treated is a, is a civil servant and has all of the stagnation and frustration and politicizing and hostility that goes along with, you know, working for a corrupt criminal organization. So that's sort of the big subtlety. And at the very end of it, she meets a, a, a libertarian guy uh, who lays it all bare for her uh, in a, I think, a subtle and, and I think, I think well-written manner. Uh, and so that's sort of the idea, you know, that she has all of these little hints during the day that are very hard to pick up on, at least consciously. And then at the end, uh, somebody lays the whole system bare for her. Somebody that she thinks she's treating ends up sort of healing her. That's the big, uh, that's the big reversal. So when, when a friend of Christina's read it, uh, she has a, a, um, a, boy, a live-in boyfriend. And so uh, her live-in boyfriend read it, and he came back, and we sort of had something to eat, and he, we sort of asked him what they thought of the book. And Christina's friend actually you know, studied English and, and knows her as a teacher and so on. So we were hoping to get a lot from her, but unfortunately her boyfriend was the one who gave us almost all of his opinions. And like most people, other than me, who want to give you a lot of their opinions, they're not very well thought out. So what he said was, you know, it needs to be more like, you know, it needs to be more like Silkwood. You know, it needs to be more dramatic. It needs to be more like Ellen Brockovich, where people are dying. It needs to be, you know, you need to pump up the drama. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, well, and he said also, he said, you know, the woman, she needs to fight the corruption more. She needs to make her stand. She needs to get up there and, and do stuff. And so I said, oh, that's interesting or whatever, right? And then a few minutes later, and I sort of had this in my head as a, not as a gotcha, but just as a sort of understand, help me understand thing. I asked him if he'd ever been at his work exposed to anybody who, you know, was doing something wrong, who was doing the wrong thing, sort of in a basic sense. And so, for instance, one of the um, therapists in the novel is, is an alcoholic, which, you know, is not as uncommon as you might hope and pray, right? And he said, oh, yeah, one of the guys at the plant, he used to come down and he was a, he was a drinker and we used to have to cover for him and all this and that, right? And I said, well, I assume he was around some sort of da dangerous machinery, right? And he sort of, yeah, you know, and it, ha ha, kind of cool, you know, we used to cover, keep our third eye on the back of our heads to see if this guy was barreling down on us with a forklift and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, he worked there for a couple of years while um, this guy was working at a factory and then he, I don't know, left or retired or something like that. But, and I said, well, help me understand because you know I, I really I don't mean this in any critical way but I really just want to understand the connection right because you're saying that that this woman in in the novel that Christina and I wrote should take a real stand more of a stand against this colleague who's a drunk right like the, the woman in the novel does go and report it and has an excruciating interview with the woman who runs the um, sort of employee services health and safety services there and, you know, in, in, in the real world, of course, nothing happens. Um, 
but I said, you know, so, you know, this woman in the novel, she does act to do something about it, but you don't feel that it's dramatic enough or she should take a really dramatic stand or, you know, some sort of public yelling confrontation or whatever. And I said, but help me understand why you feel that that should happen in a book, but in your life, you didn't lift a finger to report or deal with this drunken colleague that you had. And, you know, of course, he turns kind of red because he's caught, right? And he gets a little hostile, and I have to sort of manage that situation. But, and I wasn't really trying to get him. I mean, I was genuinely curious. What would it mean to read a book wherein someone takes a stand against an alcoholic colleague and feel that, feel absolutely no connection with your own actions? I mean, because that's sort of the, the point of, of trying to write a novel like this. Um, the novel that I wrote before this, well, okay, I wrote a novel before this that was sort of like the discovery of a new island that turns into a libertarian society, but that's, that's going to take a while to finish. But the novel I wrote before that was this sort of trilogy where it's sort of two brothers from 1916 to 1940. And one of them becomes one of them works for the foreign office and joins the appeasers, and the other one um, becomes a fighter pilot. And you know, it's the sort of the two hostilities of two brothers, which I know a little bit about. And uh, that was—it's a huge novel. I mean, it's, it's grand, and it's you know, it's got Churchill and Deladier and von Ribbentrop and you know, all the biggies from the—they're all in the novel, right? Because I'm trying to trace as much as possible the causes of World War II. So it's a big, ambitious project, and I really liked the idea of working on a sort of detail piece with Christina, but I was sort of shocked a little bit that this guy would be so unconnected to any of his own moral choices that he would sort of say, you know, like have the complete opposite morals for a character in a book than he would for himself. So this character in the book, uh, Sophia, her name is, which is, I think, Greek for wisdom, it, that's why we chose it. So this Sophia in, in, the no, in the novel Christina and I wrote, Public Lives, does take a stand. And this guy says she should take more of a stand. It should be more dramatic. And yet, you know, within two minutes, he's sort of laughing and telling me about, ha-ha, this guy was so drunk where I worked and we used to have to cover for him. Um, I just sort of found that fascinating. And I, I think that that's the result. Now, it's the result of a lot of things, but... At one level, it's the result of art, modern art, failing to connect with people morally. So you get a lot of the sort of ethics of emergencies, right? Like a, there's a show, House, on television where, you know, it's always the same kind of show, right? They can't figure it out. And then it turns out, you know, one treatment is going to kill the guy, the other one is going to save the guy, and the only way they'll know which is the right treatment is whether they kill him or save him. You know, dun-dun-dun, it's all so dramatic. And, uh, I mean, I think it's a fine show, and it is about a, a sort of misogynistic rationalist, and uh, I think the rationalist part is interesting. I think the misogynistic part is not. Uh, uh, but he is acerbic, right? I mean, you, you can't speak the truth unless you're bitter in most modern movies, right, in most modern dramas. But so there's that sort of stuff where, you know, it's, it's melodramatic. And it's melodramatic not because those things don't happen, but because that's not what morality is all about. In my view, you know, please accept my humble uh, area here simply because um, I believe that morality is about the little choices that we make every day. You know, like if, I, if I'm angry at someone, do I blow up and yell at them or do I 
you know, restrain myself and take a break and, you know, deal with them rationally. I mean, unless they're yelling at me, uh, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, if there's a colleague at work who is abusive, what do I do about it? If, there's, if I have an employee at work who's abusive, what do I do about it? Um, if I see that the business is doing something that's corrupt, you know, if they're falsifying something uh, or, you know, exaggerating something, then what do I do? Uh, in my relationship with my wife and how I'm going to raise my kids. All of these little, this is sort of in my relationship with my family. You know, do I accept bad behavior? Do I accept things that I know to be uh, against what is the truth or against what I value? Uh, those little decisions are what morality is for. They're not, you know, for the big life and death choices which, you know, one in a thousand or one in a million people are actually going to ever face in their life. And and those life and death choices are often the result of failing to be moral. Okay, I'm going to give up on the voting thing. I'll just be completely honest <laughs> because I want to sort of follow this through to the end and I only have about another 10 minutes till I get to work. Um, so if you look at the science of nutrition and exercise and so on, the science of prevention uh, of medical problems, if you make those little decisions every day, you know, like I don't have the second piece of chocolate cake and I don't eat the whole bag of chips and I, I get off the couch and I go for a walk or I go to the gym and, and I eat my greens and, you know, whatever. And I weigh myself, right? So I sort of measure whether or not I'm getting uh, chunkier with age or just chunkier. Those little decisions are what results in your health like 10 or 20 years down the road. So, you know, if you don't do those things, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but in general, right? If you don't do these things, then maybe you're 50 and you have a heart attack. So the heart attack is very dramatic. But the heart attack is only dramatic because lots of little decisions have been made for 20 years that result in a heart attack, right? If you make different decisions for 20 years, and I don't mean consistently, I mean I have a weakness for chocolate and... You know, I have no aversion to a nice cookie after lunch. But if you make those decisions... Oh... If you make those decisions um, differently for 20 years, then, lo and behold, you end up with no heart attack. And there's no drama. I mean, you just go... That day that you would have had a heart attack if you'd lived something different, there's no drama. Now, if you end up with a situation wherein you have to make life and death decisions and it's not just, you know, purely medical and and so on, then, you know, quite often that's the result of sort of a, a lot of smaller bad decisions that you've made beforehand. You know, so if you end up having an affair, you have this big moral dilemma, you know, do I tell my wife or you, you know, you, that, that or my husband, then that's of course the result of lots of little decisions. You don't end up just having an affair. Right. I mean, I've I've not had, um, I've not had any body, even remotely, any woman has remotely come on to me since I've got married because I'm just so obviously happily married and can't do anything but talk about how wonderful my wife is. Uh, but you know, if if you are not happily married, then that's the result of bad decisions you made earlier in life. Right. Maybe you were you were a teenager, or you you were attracted to women who weren't that great for you or weren't that great in general, but you didn't decide to get counseling or you didn't decide to explore yourself to know yourself to figure out your past and what led you there and so you kind of just keep dating the wrong people and then you get married to the wrong woman and you have a bad marriage so you end up with a with a divorce you know with a, an affair and maybe a divorce and then you've got all this drama with your ex-wife and 
you know, she's taking the kids to Guatemala or, you know, making it difficult or, you know, there's problems and she's always wants more money. And, you know, so you end up with this life of continual drama and, you know, continual moral choices that are horrible, right? So let's say, for instance, that your wife, uh, your ex-wife is teaching your kids morals that you don't believe in, right? One of which may be that you're the worst guy in the universe, but others which may be, you know, socialism or, or you know, some sort of religious teachings or spiritualism or mysticism, irrationalism, you know, whatever, right? Well, you've got these moral choices, you know, and they're big, complicated, ugly moral choices around, you know, what do you teach your kids? How do you teach your kids about the truth without, you know, ending back up in court with your ex-wife? And, you know, these are all difficult, complicated moral decisions, but they result from a, lo- a large number of years wherein you've made bad decisions, right? Um, you know, like a friend of mine whose marriage was obviously bad, uh, you know, decided to have a second kid. Well, so now he's stuck with the marriage. There's a lot of drama. He's still got the should I stay or should it go syndrome. And all of this is, you know, tortured and traumatic and so on. And now, of course, if he does leave, he's got two kids and alimony and he'll never have another family and it's all become... But, I mean, these are all the result of a large number of decisions, right? Deciding not to listen to his friends who said she might not be the one for you. Deciding not to listen to his friends when they said don't have another kid with her to get things worked out. You know, just not listening to people and then you end up with all this drama. And that, I think, is a very important aspect of morality. That when it comes time to the big life or death, you know, juicy dramas, right? Then the question is, what are all the little decisions that you've made beforehand? And there are... This is true in the state sense as well. Like, when when the current state financially collapses, there's going to be a lot of drama in the world, right? (laughs) There's really going to be a lot of drama and panic and life and death decisions. And, you know, it's similar to if a draft ever gets instituted, there's going to be lots of drama and life and death decisions. And those are going to be absolutely horrible, right? Do I leave my family and my home and flee to some country where I'm not going to get extradited and where I don't have to go to war? Those are horrible decisions. But sort of collectively as a society, they have resulted from, you know, a hundred years of bad decisions. And bad decisions in particular being not being honest with ourselves about the growth of government power and doing what we could to stop it, right? I mean, government power is entirely rests upon the argument for morality, so do I have the courage to speak about the moral truth of, you know, state violence and take away its moral legitimacy, which is, eventually it's going to cause it to, to collapse, right? I mean, or at least when it, if it doesn't cause it to collapse, when it does collapse, everybody will know that it collapsed because it was violent and evil, and it didn't collapse because, you know, uh, people aren't nice enough to make socialism work. So uh, that those kinds of drama comes from those kinds of results. The draft, right, comes from, you know, did you oppose the war? Did you speak out vociferously against a war? You know, did you uh, sort of try to understand the nature of war? You know, as a citizen who's got access to lots of information in a, in a situation where the state is getting more and more violent and aggressive, um, you know, you kind of owe it to yourself and to the truth and to your children to, you know, take a stand, right? And it doesn't mean you know, marching down Main Street with, you know, banners, and it doesn't mean, you know, but whatever it is, in conversations with people, you never know how the truth spreads, right? You just, if you know it, then you might want to make the effort to try and spread it to to whatever degree you can, the way you don't end up being sort of really lonely and bitter and not being able to, it's, it's a balancing act, right? If you If you alienate everyone because you're just hammering the truth at them, then you don't get to speak the truth to anyone unless you have sort of the facility to do a podcast like I do. But if you don't talk to anyone about the truth, then you might as well be alone and isolated, and you haven't really gained anything. 
So I think that the failure in in movies and in art and books and so on is that nobody talks about the little decisions at the beginnings of things, right? Morality is, is all about the little decisions at the beginning of things, when you, when you really do have a choice, when you are choosing. And that, to me, is kind of anti-moral. I mean, if all you're doing is saying that morality are these impossible life-and-death decisions, like who is who you're going to throw off the rowboat because it's going to sink and you don't have enough food for everyone, so who are you going to make die and you have to choose between one of your children who's going to die. And I mean, that stuff to me is completely anti-moral because that's really not what morality is about. When you're in those kind of compulsory situations, it doesn't really matter what you may or may not want to do. I mean, by the time you're sort of Sophie and choosing between your children in a death camp, morality is, is, is impossible, right? It's like saying that nutrition is, you know, is important during a heart attack. Well, it's not. Nutrition is important in preventing a heart attack. Exercise is important in preventing a heart attack. Once you're already there, then you're just in sort of brute animal reaction mode, and it doesn't really matter what you choose, because your choices, you wouldn't choose to be in that situation. So your choices after that are sort of irrelevant. So, I mean, I know that's a, a complicated topic, which we can get into another time. But, you know, the thing I would really try and help you focus on is, you know, next time you see a movie or read a book, look at the moral choices that are presented and see if, it not, <clears throat> if it's not really sort of subtly anti-morality by placing morality in the category of a series of impossible choices, none of which are going to make you happy, which is not very complementary towards morality, and I think that's something that's a real rot at the core of modern art, as you'd expect, right? I mean, art comes out of philosophy in the sort of second generation of things, and, you know, because the philosophy is corrupt and false, the art is going to be anti-morality, anti-rationality, but it still can't escape the fact that the argument for morality is so powerful and therefore it's going to combine the two, right? The argument for morality combined with anti-rationality and hostility towards morality is going to produce all of these dramas wherein these impossible moral choices are put forward. Well, I think I've actually achieved something rather remarkable here, which is a podcast composed entirely of tangents. I mean, I guess I knew it was coming sooner or later. <laughs> they were sort of growing like a weed. I'm still going to post this, though. Um, but uh, thanks for making it to the end. I promise I will try to get to... No, I don't even promise. I will get to voting this afternoon, and I hope you've enjoyed this. Thanks so much.